Hi everyone, my name is Ritik and welcome to another edition of Lifetime Value. Today I'm extremely excited to have my next guest, Rubens, who I met through a cold email on LinkedIn and we've kept in touch with each other through this pandemic and he's had such an interesting career in life that he's always one of the first few ones I, I reach out to. I want to try something new and exciting in my career or, or in my personal life. In his career, Rubens has worked for McKinsey, for Corporación Mexicana de Restaurantes, which is the third largest restaurant chain in Mexico, and they operate Chili's, an international brand, and own Sushito. He's also worked at PayPal and Uber Eats and SoftBank, and he also holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. So just this summary is probably not going to do justice to Ruben's background. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Ruben's onto the podcast. Thank you so much, Ritik, for that introduction. I'm also super excited to be here. When I heard about your project and the, the, the previous interviews, I, I got even more excited to be one of your, your guests. I'm very, very excited to have you. And please tell our listeners something about yourself and what you're doing these days. Of course. Thank you. Well, the only thing I think you, you skipped to mention was my entrepreneurial background. I also founded two companies uh, in the food and beverage industry. One was uh, an importer of Brazilian wines and a private label of, of cachaça. Um, and that was right after McKinsey. Uh, and then the other business I did, uh, which was very important in my career, was a restaurant. I founded Costanza in 2014. Um, it was a very big restaurant and, and I was uh, for the first time debuting as a chef. Um, wow. because I'm really passionate about food and hospitality as my background is 100% Italian. I was born and raised in Venezuela and, and came in Mexico for, uh, for undergrad studies. That led to the, the job at McKinsey and, uh, and then the MBA at Boston and then all the, these experiences that, that you just mentioned. Uh, but I would say that just to compliment on my background, uh, I'm a, a very passionate entrepreneur who ended up coming back to the corporate world. Amazing. If this doesn't get our listeners excited, I, I generally don't know <laughs> what else would. Um, I wanted the theme of this particular podcast to focus a bit more on your experiences, especially doing a lot of the strategic side, the, the operations, being always on the management side. So perhaps maybe we can start with a very basic question. In your opinion, what does a strategic person do in a fintech startup? Uh, what does the operation side actually do? Well, both functions play a, a paramount role in any organization as, as they both have to make sure that your value proposition is delivered seamlessly and that you realize your business goals. So the strategy and the operation function are, are very complementary. And, and I'll start with strategy which I think has a couple of, of common themes across the fintech or, or the, the digital world, which is the strategy function is to help you to forecast, to model, to, to, uh, to try to put numbers into pilots, into plans, into alliances that you want to build. They also play a role in, in the planning and the growth and set up the, the KPIs that are very much needed follow up mm -hmm. and also provide this type of, of data and, and, and accurate information of the state of the business. So it's, it's not only about the planning of the future, but what is happening in the present and sometimes mm -hmm. what happened in the past. No? Yeah. Sometimes strategy has that, that type of, of ana analytics 
and people dedicated to figuring out ways to improve the future. Sometimes that leaves in the operation side, sometimes it leaves in the finance section. It depends on the company, no? Mm -hmm. But it's also important to mention that for me, one of the key uh, points of, of the function of the strategy is um, how competitors uh, are behaving. What's the landscape? Uh, how, how do you benchmark with the rest of the players, with the brick and mortar players that you're disrupting maybe? So um, this, this is what I can say that the strategy do for, for most of the, of the fintechs I've seen and for the businesses uh, in the digital world that, I, that I've seen. The operations is, is a bit more, maybe more complex and, and more broad. And sometimes the operations will vary uh, company by company because they may have uh, more centralized and than decentralized ways of operating or some product-centric roles that, uh, um, that, that may be different, no? But uh, in my view, I think that um, the operations uh, have to make sure that the end-to-end -end activities required to put a product or a service into the consumer's hands or computers or whatever, uh, is done seamlessly with the least cost and with the most profit and with the best service available. Uh, this requires many uh, behind the scenes uh, work with respect to the compliant things that you need to do to, to provide customers uh, with the appropriate data or be able to access their accounts. For instance, uh, sometimes the operations also oversee call centers, um, mm -hmm. oversee the communication that is done through multiple channels, including now Facebook, um, mm -hmm. WhatsApp, uh, and uh, uh, they get the live, uh, they, they sometimes have to manage the live quality of this, making sure that, that the operational KPIs are met. Sometimes the operations also play a big role in understanding fraud. In Latin America, yeah. we live constantly with, with fraud threats. And yeah. given that the operation understands how the business is done and where the transaction is made, it may be the, the best suited in an organization to understand how fraud is done and to make the necessary changes uh, in the operations to avoid it at all, no? uh, to have a, a, a proactive approach to, to what is fraud. Also, you can find other, uh, other areas like I did, for instance, at Uber Eats, where we have a mm -hmm. safety squad trying to improve, trying to measure and improve uh, all the relations between the, the couriers and the restaurants, the couriers and the eaters, and, and the restaurants and couriers. No? In this, in this yeah. three, 3P, uh, you get a lot of, of, of variables in place. But I would say that that's, that's pretty much it. No? Uh, we can uh, definitely deep dive into, into more of the, of the things that, that operations do at something like Uber Eats, where I was the head. And yeah. I'm happy to, to give you more color if you want. Perfect. So to sort of summarize, and this was a very good explanation. So what I understood from it is like on the strategy side, there's a lot more on the forecasting, planning, benchmarking, and operations is, to be honest, a lot like a Swiss army knife where the company needs help. You go in there, you solve the problem. So a lot of it, I would say is operations would be problem solving, which leads me to the question that what sort of skill set do you think a good operations manager or strategic manager would have? Sure, that's a very interesting question. And, and I got those skills with the combination of the McKinsey, uh, the analytics and the rigor of the, of the uh, high-end consulting. Yeah. Um, and then complementing it to, to what I had in, at, at the restaurant when I was cooking and I was serving food. And, and I had this very different job than to be a, a, a McKinsey consultant be in the in the operation so i would say that that first you need to be curious 
you need to be data driven. Um, you need to observe uh, and, and have uh, a lot of attention to detail. And uh, you gotta be a problem, a natural problem solver. That, that is yeah. that you are excited about solving or bringing to the table new ways of making things. So if you wanna be part of this environment where everything is, is growing, and, uh, but you're also disrupting um, traditional players and the way people think, do, interact, buy and sell, you need to make sure that, that you understand what is happening around the world. And, and finally, I would say that um, the collaboration and the communication are, are two uh, skills that I, I don't agree are soft, I think are hard and are mm -hmm. uh, very important uh, uh, nowadays uh, more with, with, the, with how our communications are getting more complex due to the COVID situation. Um, so curiosity, collaboration, data-driven, Flexibility to, to adopt to changes needed uh, are very important characteristics that will allow you to be successful, whatever you're doing in, in, as an entrepreneur or as, uh, as an employee in, in a fintech or startup. Excellent answer. Now, what has been some of the most challenging projects that you've worked on and how did you navigate? Well, I would say that during my career um, and, and talking about operations, maybe one of the hardest things I had to deal with was changes in regulation in Mexico, okay. a business like Uber Eats. So let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, the, the authority was proposing new taxes that would require uh, by law that all couriers were in, in the system, in the, in the, have a, a valid ID, that, that a specific amount of information was uh, also introduced in their system. And we were, we were responsible to collect and to withhold and pay the authority. Some new taxes, uh, some were old, but some were, were new to, to the legislation. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the periods of time to which we had to comply were very short. So this put us in a, in a very strict uh, position as uh, with Uber, uh, we were definitely and always complying with the law mm -hmm. um, and, and we needed to make uh, big changes um, to the way we operated, uh, specifically to the way we got uh, new couriers onboarded into the platform and uh, the way the, the marketplace uh, operated. Why is this uh, a complex situation uh, making or, or putting the business into risk? Well, as you know, uh, our, our tax culture is, is not as strong as in Scandinavian countries or, or first world countries. So people avoid at all costs trying to pay taxes or mm -hmm. even having a valid ID. Yeah. Um, and we had to make like, big changes in the way people perceive this and collaborate with all kinds of, of internal players uh, but also external stakeholders that allowed us to, to comply with, uh, uh, within 60, 90 days with a new regulation. And this required that we introduce new, um, and, and new ways to, uh, to get valid IDs into the system, new ways to um, help them uh, with the best decisions to make because they needed to, to, to take a decision of how they wanted to pay taxes to the authority so there was a lot of education, was a lot of communication, incentives, because these type of tasks require hours in a day or maybe two, three attempts and, and people live by the day. So True. how you would compensate those hours? Uh, so we had to think in all type of scenarios. We had to segment a lot of the data, understand every day how uh, our operations were getting more into the 100% the of compliant trips 
how we uh, needed to play the, the stick sometimes and, and not necessarily the carrots. Uh, and you needed to uh, tell people that they couldn't uh, continue delivering as if, if they weren't complying with the law. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this was uh, uh, probably a 90-day project that uh, was uh, extremely complex because uh, new uh, variables were in place and we needed to have a platform that delivered 99% plus of, of the requests that did it in less than 40 minutes and at a target cost per trip. So uh, when you mix and, and you blend in um, the, the new additional variables, uh, um, the, the situation was complex. And I, and I think what, uh, what allowed us to, to make this happen uh, was that we could work on, on a very flexible way, um, having leaders that were uh, always very attentive, the GM and, and the regional managers were uh, always there to, to listen, to make quick and bold decisions and collaborate extensively with the legal areas, with the tax areas, because decisions sometimes required more than one input. And uh, it wasn't not necessarily my, my call, but the mm -hmm. call of, of, a, of, of a group of, of people that saw the, the problem and the opportunity uh, with the different lens. Something similar happened in California too, right? Yes. Where whether they get paid as employees or contractors and all of that back and forth, um, one other sort of follow-up question I had is your latest experience included SoftBank and a lot of people tend to have this sort of aura around SoftBank and just because of how massive the fund is and how often it is in the newspapers. You did a very interesting role, which was you were the VP of operations. You know, a lot of people would be like SoftBank, okay you know, finance guy, but that's not what you were leading. So perhaps you can give us a quick breakdown as to how SoftBank operates in LATAM and how your role was integral to their functioning. Sure. Well, I can speak of how it, it operated while I was there. Um, yes. SoftBank had a, a team of operators, which we called sometimes the value creation team. Okay. And that team was working always in close collaborations to the investment team. But you can think of as as uh, as as um, as both teams collaborating in before and after the investment case is done, and the, the fund decides into investment. So okay. what I did was after the investment, what things could be done to uh, help these companies achieve their financial goals, their operational KPIs, how we could accelerate and catalyze uh, their uh, their spectacular growth that they already had. So this included, uh, and this value creation name included synergies among the companies of the portfolio, but also with external, very large players in the media, in the financial sector, in the CPG sector, or uh, even in the, in the other financial sectors. So my job was to help companies agree in alliances and in, in new businesses, in collaborating more closely and, and allowing them to, to make faster decision makings in business development than if, if the SoftBank group wasn't there present. Interesting. I had one last question before we move on to the payback period side. In your opinion, what are some things that you see in Mexico or in LATAM in general that make it such positive and at the same time, what do you think can be improved? Let me start for what, what is to be improved and definitely <laughs> is uh, legislation, regulation, yeah. 
and corruption, I would say. No, it's uh, Latin America is, is not necessarily a place where a business is easy to be done. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because of the red tape and, and sometimes uh, corrupt institutions that uh, are making more complicated the, the story of any entrepreneur or, or any executive at, in, in any country. However, um, I, I love Latin America. Definitely, I'm from here. And I think uh, it, it, it gives a beautiful canvas for you to, uh, to paint uh, because uh, we have approximately 700 million people. Um, we have everything to be done. Uh, we still require a lot of infrastructure. Uh, the tech and the, the fintech and, uh, has actually made us uh, achieve or, or, or access to, to better products and faster uh, than if we hadn't. Uh, because we don't have to go through through all the ways uh, other countries have gone, but we can adapt and incorporate uh, new things. So Mexico in particular is very exciting because it's uh, with the um, uh, North America Free Trade Agreement that was renewed recently. It, it has a lot of commercial relationship with the U.S. and Canada, uh, which are two super powerful countries. Um, and um, we have very fast access to tech very fast uh, uh, access to talent and uh, we're super close in terms of also of geography. So um, having said that and, and having seen all the, how the macro has improved, um, Mexico is relatively stable um, in terms of inflation, interest rates. Um, we see uh, um, a currency that, that also has shown somehow stability even though we have had mm-hmm. uh, depreciation in the past year, um, the penetration of, of, of smartphones in, in terms of the population is, is getting uh, more and more uh, closer to, to the 90s or to the 100%. Like the access to internet is, is widely is available. This is, this is a land of, of the opportunity, you know? And with the opportunity, I think it comes a lot of challenges, but, but I think it's, it's exciting enough because there's so much to, to be done that the addressable markets are huge and the opportunities mm-hmm. are spectacular. Excellent answer. Now, let's move on to the next section, which is the payback period where mm-hmm. the guest asks me a question and I have to answer it. So Rubens, go for it. So when I met Ritik, uh, I was impressed because he told me he was also a stand-up comedist. <laughs> and for me, this is one of the most difficult things to do because it requires um, for you to be super quick and, and understand uh, what's happening in the other side, be able to adapt, to react quickly. And, and also it requires a level of intelligence uh, to be able to manage, to remember uh, too many things. So I, I'm yeah. super impressed about this. And, and I wanted to ask you, what learning is extrapolable from this experience of stand-up yeah. comedies into, into these very serious things that you do? Yeah. Have you applied something specific into business? Yes, absolutely. And that's a great question. To be honest, there's so much that is exportable in that sense. First of all, public speaking in front of a bunch of people who are either tired, wasted, or not interested in hearing you, that is a challenge. When I'm speaking with somebody that is actually interested in hearing what I have to say, it makes it so much easier. So, so in that sense, being able to get my point across, being able to talk is amazing. Then uh, managing risk. I, I, I feel like comedy, when I get on stage, is essentially an exercise in risk management. 
you know, you're, you're going there with a particular offering and then you manage the risk of speaking with the crowd, uh, taking feedback. And, and unlike any other business, comedy feedback is instant. Like you will know, uh, you don't have to wait every six months or a year to get your, oh, what did I do right or what did I do wrong? You know immediately whether you're right or wrong. So building on that feedback and then changing the sets that I do, I prepare it to the point I can do it in my sleep. Definitely some tequila helps, but, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially have, going there with a prepared plan is always better than going there and just let me feel the crowd out. A lot of comedians are very good at that too, but I personally am not. So I go in with a plan and then I always have like, okay, if they didn't like this trend or this line of comedy that I'm doing, then either I'll switch it back to a reliable joke that I've done before, or I will essentially change to another track immediately. So in, in our sort of fintech world or the startup world, that's essentially, you know, if I put out a product, let's say I'm a neobank and I give out a product for parents to open up an account for the kids. And then I realize that it sucks to be able to immediately take in their feedback and adjust either by offering something completely different or by having perks that will entice people to continue with that existing product. Uh, it allows me to constantly be in that state where I'm absorbing feedback and adjusting immediately. That for me is one of the biggest sort of intangible learning lessons. And I'm in a very privileged position where I get to interact with like all these MBAs and, and finance and tech guys in the, during the day and all these extremely artsy and abstract people at night. That sounds amazing. Congratulations uh, on, on all those uh, learnings and, and how you perceive them. Uh, a second question I would like to, yes. uh, to make is, uh, what do you love the most about living in, in Mexico? Uh, is there some trait about the, the Mexican people that, that you would export or even take with you or, yeah. or adopt? I mean, it has been, even in my wildest dreams, I could not have imagined the way it has turned out. Like when I came to Mexico, I had like a semblance of what I wanted to do. I had some experience in the financial markets. I had, you know, a college degree from Singapore and uh, I could definitely exploit it. But the way it has turned out just because of the culture, the people, it's gone way beyond what I could have possibly imagined in terms of getting success and, and also building my career. Uh, people are extremely friendly. Everybody's there to help you. Um, and, and nobody's out there to, especially in the work environment, nobody's out there to, hey, how can I get my way out of this guy? Like nobody's out there to use one another. I, I've always felt it's been a family. And that's something, you know, maybe my work experience in Singapore is a lot more limited. But what I've seen so far is something I want to bring that in, in Mexico, like my closest friends are my colleagues in Mexico, which I don't really see happening. Like maybe even the, in the US, I don't know if that happens that often. Uh, in Singapore, it was, it was kind of like that, but it wasn't like, I'm going to invite this guy or this guy's going to be one of my best men at my wedding. That wasn't the first thing, you know, I would think about. We'd be like, yeah, sure. That'd be great to have a, for a barbecue, 
but not that level of, of camaraderie. And that's something I love about Mexico. That's awesome. Very I'm glad you like it that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Rubens, just wanted to ask for any last words of advice for any graduate trying to enter LATAM FinTech. I think the last advice would be uh, to make sure you incorporate data science in your CV or in your strategy or organization. Whether you are starting your career, be rigorous about data, understand the power that data has. Because data, that, that shift in power from banks to any type of institutions had made fintech possible. So if, if we analyze and we are conscious that, that we can get data, analyze it, and react to that data immediately and, 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 and be able to serve our customers better through the understanding of that data, uh, that definitely will put you in, in, in a much better spot. Um, the rest of the things I would say, like, like always do the right thing. Be, be a nice person, be an honest person. Make sure you, you collaborate, you have friends, you enjoy your life to be self-aware. If you're a generalist, make sure you also have a, a special gift that you can play sometimes in a while, because it's important that you can talk about your specialties. No? Um, um, I think that that would be my final advice. Thank you very much. Great. And would you like to share your contact information of course. to our listeners as well? Definitely. My email address is rubenspf, p as in Peter, f as in France, at gmail.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn as Rubens Pasquale. I believe it's Rubens P. Well, this was such a pleasure, Rubens. Thank you so much for taking time out. I had so much fun and, and I hope to speak to you more about the restaurant business and, and all your other interesting facets of your life soon. Thank you for the invitation. I would love to come back definitely to discuss any other subject that, that for you and, <laughs> and for your, uh, your audience is, is interesting. Thanks again, Ritik. Thank you so much.